Well, he was incarcerated in Rome, uh, and he's been through the proverbial ringer. And the way that I imagine it, because I think it's healthy to imagine what we read in the scriptures and to imagine the context of what we read in the scripture as it may have happened. And I have every reason to believe that as he was there incarcerated in Rome, as he's been through the proverbial ringer, I can see Paul picking up his pen. And you may not think it happened this way, but that's all right. You can be wrong and I'll still be right. But I think that he picked up his pen and I can just see him as he, as he paused for a moment, as we all do, as we get ready to write a note, as we get ready to write a letter. He picked up his pen and he paused and he thought. He was gonna write a letter to friends. And in that moment, I can see a smile come to his face and perhaps he just kind of chuckled to himself. And he thought about the last two or three years that led up to this moment. And he thought about how hard life's been. Life's not been easy for him. Life has been difficult. And let's just be honest, it's been hell. For about the past three or four years, it had been hell for the Apostle Paul. I can see him as he thinks about the time that he was left for dead outside of a city. I can imagine him as he thinks about the many times that he was beaten and either attempted to be thrown in jail or was actually thrown in jail for a short period of time. He thinks about that group of 40 plus men that took a vow to God that they were gonna assassinate Paul and they were not gonna eat or drink until they killed him. I imagine that as he thought about his trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, when they nearly beat him to death and the Romans had to save him. And then as he thought about his two trials before two different Roman governors, Felix and Festus, and his time before the Judean king Agrippa, and he thought about all those trials and he thought about the two years that he spent in jail there. And then on his trip to Rome, he thought about how his ship wrecked and how he almost died and the crew almost died and all the people on board almost died. But he thought about all of that and here he is in Rome, chained 18 inches from a Roman guard. And he's writing a letter to friends. He's lost almost anything that you could lose. He's lost his freedom. He's lost his comfort. He's lost so many things. His plans are broken, shattered in the floor, and he's lost everything except one thing, his joy. And so he writes a letter to friends to ensure that they too can have joy, that they too will not lose their joy in the face of what's going on in life. And so he gets to the middle part of the letter, and this is what Paul writes. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Friends, if you want to have joy, if you want to keep your joy, if you want a joy that's impervious to life, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. This whole letter is about joy. And it was only a matter of time until Paul came to this idea of attitude and how attitude relates to joy. Every time I read those words, I think about some words that I heard many, many times growing up from my mom and my dad. They would look at me and they would say, if you don't fix your attitude, I'm about to give you an attitude adjustment. Some of you, you heard it as well, right? I also heard this version of, if you don't fix your attitude, I'm gonna fix it for you. How many of y'all heard that before? I knew there's a reason you're in this church. Uh, we're all cut from the same cloth. I know it's hard for you to imagine that your pastor has ever had a bad attitude, uh, but there were a couple of times as I was growing up when my parents, uh, which were very passionate, they were very passionate about 
adjusting my attitude when they felt like my attitude needed adjusting. Matter of fact, they were so committed to this idea of attitude adjustment, they actually invested in an attitude adjustment apparatus. Uh, it, it was actually a piece of equipment. A lot of people just call it a belt. And they would use that apparatus to adjust my attitude. On occasion, they preferred to be more organic and they used uh, what you don't hear a lot of people talk about these days, a switch. Some of you, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Therein lies part of the problem with our world today, but that's another discussion for another day. So they, they would be skillful about it uh, and they would in all of their giftedness leverage all that those tools could use to adjust my attitude. And like skillful artists, they applied colors of red and violet to the pale canvas of my backside. Not that I would call it a masterpiece, but that's what good parents try to do, right? Maybe not exactly that way, uh, but maybe so. Uh, that's not the point. The point is good parents want to save their children from bad attitudes. Uh, bad attitudes are very visible in the eyes of a good mom or a good dad or a good grandpa or a good grandma. And so good parents and, and, and people who love us, we want to save people from a bad attitude. And this was what Paul was doing when he gets to chapter 2, verse 5. When he says, I want the attitude of Jesus to be your attitude. If you're going to have joy and you're going to maintain it, you've got to address your attitude because you don't want to have a bad attitude, especially as a follower of Jesus. I mean, that's the, one of the worst things that you could have in following Jesus is a bad attitude. And every single one of us, we know that whether it's a Jesus follower or not a Jesus follower, it doesn't really matter. Uh, there are a few things in life as harmful, detrimental, unattractive, and undermining as a bad attitude. When you think about it, now, this is just good life wisdom here. A bad attitude, the ripple effect, it has so many consequences in so many different important areas of life. A bad attitude uh, has relational consequences. A bad attitude uh, can have professional consequences and therefore have financial consequences to it. It can have spiritual consequences. I mean, the consequences of having a bad attitude, I mean, it just goes on and on and some really important aspects of our life gets deeply impacted when we walk around with a bad attitude. Um, nobody wants to be with someone who has a bad attitude. We don't wanna ride down the road with somebody who has a bad attitude. We don't enjoy eating with somebody who has a bad attitude. We don't wanna take vacation with somebody who has a bad attitude. We don't wanna work with somebody who has a bad attitude. Doesn't matter how smart they are, how beautiful they are, how gifted they are, we just don't, none of us enjoy a bad attitude. A bad attitude has a lot to do with the quality and the direction of your life or the lack thereof. Maybe that's why Jesus, in his first sermon, dealt with the attitude. We call it the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter five, Jesus said, okay, let me tell you about how your attitude should be. I think that Jesus understood something about the attitude that Paul also understood. Attitude is the posture of your soul. You know, parents often, often we tell our kids all the time and sometimes we tell our spouse and, you know, sit up straight, you know, put your shoulders back, you know, put your chest out, you know, have good posture. Good posture is good for you. Well, attitude is the posture of your soul. It, it determines how you carry yourself, how I carry myself. It actually comes from an Italian word, which is where we get our English word for posture. Uh, our attitude is the backbone that's formed by our emotions, our, our thoughts, our beliefs about everyone and everything. And our thoughts, our beliefs, and our emotions about everyone and everything, they forge together and they form our attitude, which in turn informs our perspective on life. 
Uh, your attitude is how you carry yourself, but your attitude is also how you begin to see everything else. And attitude, uh, Paul knew this. This is why he writes about it in the middle of his letter. Uh, it's influenced by lots of different things, experienced by people, uh, by your upbringing, and specifically for people who follow Jesus, it's supposed to be influenced by our faith. Uh, it's not neutral. It's not, you know, in the middle. It's either positive or it's negative or it's working for us or it's working against us. And this is really important. Uh, just as I set this up for where Paul's taking us, our attitudes are sometimes explicit. Uh, we know them. Uh, we can tell we've got a bad attitude. We, we woke up in a bad mood. Uh, something happened at work. We came home and we, we just, we realize we're short, we're irritable. We realize the posture of our soul is not in a good place and, and our perspective is skewed and we're just angry and we're quick triggered and, you know, and, and we can kind of pick up on that from time to time. But there are moments in time, dangerous moments in time when our attitudes are implicit. We don't realize we have them. And we don't realize how they are affecting us, consciously or unconsciously. And that's where attitude becomes, begins to be a really important thing for us to think about and a really important thing for us to deal with. Now, I probably didn't have a real good working definition of attitude before I studied for this particular week, and maybe you didn't either, and, and maybe it's hard for you to articulate what a good attitude is, but I found that it's easy for most of us to spot a bad attitude. Uh, we can spot one, we have words uh, for it, and sooner or later, these words become evident in people's expression. Uh, sooner or later, your attitude will reveal itself through your demeanor, disposition, expressions, words, actions, and reactions. Uh, you can't keep it hidden, and people will see it, and then people will notice it, and especially when it's not healthy, especially when it's negative, especially when, when it's not constructive, uh, our attitudes will leak out, they will spill out, they wiggle out, they just have a way. Your demeanor... You just can pick it up on somebody from time to time. You can just tell when they walk in the room, man, what's, what's going on with them? They walk into the lobby of the church and you know, don't greet them. Don't say anything to them. Their disposition, I mean, look at their face. I mean, look, look, look at their, see, that's the great thing about the era of masks. You, 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 I just imagine everybody smiling right now, shaking their head, you know, disposition, you know, furled eyebrows, you know, the, the head, you know, all squished together. It's like, it's evident, our expressions, our words, our actions, our reactions. And then we have words to describe bad attitudes, right? I mean, that's just kind of the way it works. We use words like offensive or arrogant, belligerent, blunt, callous, cold, critical. I'm not going to read them all, but they're, they're there. And we've used some of these words. They're just cynical. They're just one of the most cynical people you've ever met. They're just, they're just down about everything. They're distant. You just can't get close to them. They've got so many walls up. They're guarded. They're indifferent. They, they, they just don't get affected by anyone or anything. They're intolerant. They can't for a moment entertain that they may be wrong and somebody else may be right. They're prejudiced and they don't even know it. They don't even hear what they're saying. They're prejudiced and don't even realize it. They're prideful. They're resentful. They're bitter. They're suspicious. They don't trust anybody. They always assume somebody's out to cheat them. They always assume somebody's out to con them. They're just suspicious. They're untrusting. They have a lack of a sense of humor. They're uptight. They can't have a good time. Matter of fact, if a good time breaks out with them around, the good time goes away. It moves somewhere else. And we, we see this in people. And we've said this about people. Perhaps people have said this about us. And here, here's the thing. Me first. We all have the capacity to go here, to be that. No wonder Paul said, 
let the attitude that Jesus had be your attitude. We can all be that. And maybe we go there quite often. And maybe since everything has changed about the world, maybe since a pandemic and political chaos and the cities in an act of just disasters and, and maybe because of all the endless bad news and, and all the things that are going on in your life outside of all of that and the marriage and finances and jobs and school and, and the stress of decisions and, and what's the best thing to do and what's not the best thing to do and, and all of this stuff has just caused us to get sucked into some of this. And perhaps people just recently have been looking at us saying, you know what? They could use a real attitude adjustment. And maybe, just maybe, one of the greatest things for any of us to do, me at the front of the line, would be to say, you know what? If I'm really honest, I do need an attitude adjustment. And here's the inconvenient, or the inconvenient and the uncomfortable truth about it. The only person who can save me from a bad attitude is me. That's it. My parents tried, but they can only do so much. Friends try, but they can only do so much. Jesus tries, but Jesus can only do so much when it comes to your attitude. The only person who can save me from a bad attitude is me, for I alone am responsible for my attitude. Here in London, online, Williamsburg Somerset on three. Let's all just read this bottom statement together because this is a great place to start. This, this, is, this is honesty. Jesus said, where there is truth, there is freedom. So let's, let's just speak this truth on three. One, two, three. I alone am responsible for my attitude. All right, that's good. Some of you, it's the first time you've ever said anything like that. Let's say it one more time. Ready, let's go. I alone am responsible for my attitude. You know what that means? I cannot blame my wife. I cannot blame my husband. I cannot blame my coworker. I cannot blame Nancy Pelosi. I cannot blame Mitch McConnell. I cannot blame Donald J. Trump. I cannot blame Joe Biden. I can't blame the governor. I can't blame the local government. I can't blame who lives down the street from me. I can't blame my circumstances. I can't blame my kids. I can't blame your kids. I can't blame the coach. I can't blame the teacher. I can't blame the school board. I can't blame the superintendent. I alone I'm responsible for my attitude because nobody else can save me from a bad attitude but me. And when we stop blaming everybody else for our poor demeanor, our poor disposition, our less than healthy actions and reactions, when we take responsibility for ourselves, that's the greatest day of our lives. Matter of fact, someone said that when we take responsibility for our lives, it is the greatest day of our lives because it is the day that we finally grow up and we stop blaming other people. Christians blame their churches, they blame pastors, pastors blame other churches and blame other pastors. There's no end to how we see this working out in the world around us on any given day, whether there's a natural disaster going on or not. We, we just see this and Paul writes and says, the attitude that Jesus had is the attitude that you need to have. And if you will take responsibility for it, and if I will take responsibility for it, Philippians, if you will take responsibility for it, you will be in a position to have joy, a joy that's impervious to life. What Paul's making a point about reminds me of, of one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite books by a guy by the name of Viktor Frankl. And, and I'm gonna take just a few moments and I'm gonna tell you this story because it's such a good story and because it's so relevant to what we're talking about. 
Victor Frankl wrote one, I think, is one of the greatest volumes that has been written by anyone. It's not a Christian book per se, uh, but there are, there's much truth in it. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. And Victor Frankl, to give you a little bit of his story, he was an Austrian Jew. And uh, he was born just after the turn of the century in 1905. He was a doctor of neurology and psychiatry. So we're talking about a, a very smart Jewish doctor uh, living in Austria. Uh, he was married, uh, like so many young people have done countless times in the world that we live in. He fell in love uh, with a young girl by the name of Tilly, and they married in 1941. But the world was already beginning to get off of its equilibrium. There were things happening in Germany. There was a man by the name of Adolf Hitler. And Viktor Frankl and his wife Tilly, their lives are about to be upended by the malevolent plans of the Nazis. And I'll pause here just to say this because I know that maybe I bore you from time to time with history and I hope I don't because I would love to lead you to love history even if you don't read it, but to love it when you hear it. History reminds us that ideas have consequences. What people believe have very real consequences. What Hitler and his goons and the Nazis and the people who subscribe to that ideology, what they believed had very real consequences. What you believe about people has very real consequences. What you believe about the value of people or the lack of value of some people, it has very real consequences. And that's what that time of history, it reminds us of because it was not that long ago and it was not that far away. And when you read about what the Nazis did, it's infuriating, it's sickening, and every person should be acquainted with it. Germany had invaded Poland in 1939, a couple of years before Victor got married. By 1941, the Germans had already invaded Denmark and Norway. They had just started uh, invading France and they had been bombing the daylights out of London. Uh, in 1942, uh, Frankel was arrested along with his wife, Tilly, along with his brother, Walter, and along with his mom and his dad. And they were carted off like cattle, like all the rest of the Jewish people in Europe. And they were taken to extermination camps located in different parts of Europe. Uh, like everybody else, they were taken there and the process that they started to endure was absolutely unhuman. They were taken to Auschwitz at Birkenau and they were taken there and they were stripped of all of their clothes. They were given a tattoo and never again would they be uh, referred to by their name. They had all the hair on their body removed. They were dehumanized, their jewelry, their wedding bands, their, all that they had, their clothes, their jewelry, it was all taken from them and thrown into the pile. By 1942, Victor's wife was pregnant and the Germans forced her to have an abortion because ideas have consequences. The Jewish people who were not immediately killed were beaten and they were worked tirelessly and lots of them were fed under 700 calories a day and their bodies began to consume themselves because of starvation. They started dying slowly. Women had forced sterilization, men as well. Men, women, and children underwent torture under the banner of experimental medicine. Torture and horrors that we can't even begin to fathom. The Jewish people were housed in stalls that were built originally for horses. Some of those stalls could only hold legitimately 500 people and the Germans would put in over 1,700 people shoulder to shoulder with no sanitation, very little food and no room to move around. It was hell on earth. Victor Frankl's wife was eventually, she was transferred to Bergen-Belsen, another extermination camp, and that's where she would be put to death 
His father died at another camp. His mother and his brother were taken to the gas chambers. They were told they were taking showers, but then they bolted the door behind them and they killed them all. And then they took them to the ovens of Auschwitz. Everyone else was out working in the field, looking at the smoke and smelling the smells of the air, wondering if that was their family members. All in all, 1.3 million Jews were taken to Auschwitz alone. 1.1 million of them died there. 200,000 that died there were children. Viktor Frankl was eventually transferred to Dachau back in Germany, and he was part of that infamous death march as the Germans tried to cover up their war crimes and crimes against humanity. And by the time the liberation of 1945 happened, there were only 7,000 left living at Auschwitz and only a few thousand left at Dachau, of which Viktor Frankl was one of. The horrors and the hell that he went through in this world, we cannot even begin to imagine. But this is what he said in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. The experiences of camp life show that man does have a choice of action. There were enough examples often of heroic nature. He said, let me tell you about the heroes there, which proved that apathy could be overcome, that irritability suppressed. He says, you don't have to walk around and be that way. I've seen it up close and personal. You can overcome those things. Man can preserve a vestige of spiritual freedom, of independence of mind, even in such terrible conditions of psychic and physical stress. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts. And now he describes the heroes. Walk through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in numbers, but they offer sufficient proof that everything, listen to this, don't miss this. This was worth you being here today. This is worth watching today. Everything can be taken from a man. In a day where we hear everybody talking about, I'm losing my freedom, my rights are being stripped away. Even if that reality is coming to pass, even if that is a fact of what's going on in the world, he says, everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. You know what he's saying? Same thing, saying the same thing that Paul said and the same point that Paul's making about Jesus, that your attitude doesn't have to become a casualty of your circumstances. It doesn't have to be. This is what Paul is saying as he's chained to a Roman soldier. This is why Paul points the Philippians and points us in the direction of Jesus and said, hey, the attitude that Jesus had, that's the attitude that you have. See, Paul's not superhuman, and Paul, he, he really, he's as human as you are. He had as many hang-ups and screw-ups as what you do and what I do, but he had an edge. He had an edge. That extra little something-something that allowed him to be joyful in the face of when all hell broke loose. And the edge that he had, and the edge that some of us lack, is attitude. And as we read through the letter of Philippians, it jumps off every page. It's like Paul's motto on every page is this right here. When life happens and you don't like it, change it. Okay, if you can change it, change it. If it can be changed, get involved in the process. Get informed. Get in, get in there. Vote if you need to vote. Run for office if you need to run for office. Be a part of the community. Speak up. Have something to say and say it in the right way. If it can be changed, change it. But if you can't change it, change your attitude about it. If you're in a situation that you can change, then go ahead, change it. 
But if you're in a situation and you're facing a circumstance that you can't change, then you have to change your attitude about it. I've got to change my attitude about it. And we see this all through what Paul writes. I mean, it would be malpractice of me not to go back and point it out to you, even though we've been talking about it in recent weeks. In chapter one, Paul, he expresses his attitude about friends. He says, hey, I'm right here in the midst of prison, but who am I thinking about in this moment? I'm thinking about my friends. I'm thinking about the good times that we had. That was part of his attitude. He's chained to his oppressor, but he's thinking about his friends. He could have got stuck on what was happening in front of him. No, but he chose to think about something better. He chose to think about something noble as he's gonna talk about in chapter four. When he looked at people back in Philippi and when he looked at the people that he was there in prison with, he, he didn't look at a bunch of people who just fell short. He looked at a bunch of people who just hadn't got there yet. He thought of Christians who maybe have disappointed him along the way. And he said, you know what? God's not giving up on them. I'm not giving up on them either. God started a good work in them. He's going to finish it. That's attitude. He, he looked, we can look at people and say, oh my gosh, how boneheaded, how irritating. Look at how many times they fall short. Look how many times they screw up. Or an attitude that says, you know what? They just haven't got there yet. And God's not giving up on them and neither am I. His, his attitude towards difficult circumstances. Everything that's happened to me, it's happened to advance the gospel. What an attitude. Even in the bad, God's working it for good. In chapter one, verses 15 through 18, you can read it for yourself later on, but he talks about a group of preachers. He talks about a group of Christians that are preaching Jesus, but behind the scenes, they're working against Paul to keep Paul in prison. He says, they're doing their best. Christians are doing their best to make my life more painful. You know what he says? Look at, look at it yourself later. He says, doesn't matter. They're preaching Jesus. And I, I'm gonna hang my hat on the purpose of God that God can use them even though they're working against me. What an attitude. So in chapter two, he's right in the, he's been talking about attitude the whole time. So when he gets to chapter two, he says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? And these are all rhetorical questions. The answers are obvious. Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Paul asks some questions we all kind of know the answers to and we can nod our head, but he wants us to think about it. He says, are you encouraged because you belong to Jesus? You, with all your jacked upness, you belong to Jesus. As many times as you've blown it, you belong to Jesus. As many times as you are gonna blow it, you belong to Jesus. He claims you, he's proud of you. You're the apple of his eye. He loves you with a love that you can't even fathom. You are a son, you are a daughter to God, you are a part of the family of God and you'll never not be a part of his family, no matter what. Are you encouraged by that, Paul would say? Do you think about that, Paul would say? And of course, hopefully we do. And then we can say, yeah, man, that, <laughs> when I feel like a screw up, when I think about that, if that's true, I'm telling you, and I believe it's true, that does something to me. That encourages me. That lets me know that I'm not the loser that sometimes I tell myself that I am. And when I tell myself that I don't measure up, he reminds me that he measured up for me and that I don't have to feel the pressure of not measuring up anymore. I can just be who God calls me to be and I'm in process and I'm gonna get there when he's finished with me, when his work is done. He says, are you encouraged by that? He says, are you comforted by his love? That he loves you the way that he loves you? That nothing can separate you from the love of God? That your circumstances, they're not a reflection of God's love? The pain in your life are not a reflection of God's love or a lack of God's love? That God loves you. 
Are you comforted by that? And the fellowship of the Spirit of God that God has put His Spirit in you and the most sacred space to God in all the world is you. Not the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. You. The most sacred space of real estate is wherever his sons and daughters are because they are the temple of the Spirit of God. He says, does that do something to you? Does that kind of change the way you feel and change the way that you think? Well, of course we would say, yeah, that's true, that's true. And then he says this, he says, well then, are your hearts tender and compassionate? Is this having an effect on your attitude? Tender as compared to cold and hard? Stoic, impenetrable? Does this make you tender and compassionate towards other people? Compassionate as opposed to self-righteous and judgmental? Always looking down on people, always having a list that's on the black list of people you've X'd out, people you've written off, people you don't care to ever talk to, be around because you just think they're just as good as garbage. He says, are you tender and compassionate towards people? Is that the attitude that you've got? You assume people are gonna mess up and you've already appropriated the grace ahead of time because they're human just like you. Are you being patient with people because you have compassion for them or are you so easily triggered by people? Not characterizations on television, not characterizations on social media. We're talking about people who have names, who have souls, who are people that Jesus died for. Are, how do you feel about people? The people that you've met and the people that are just figures to you, somewhere up there in Frankfurt, somewhere in Washington, somewhere on the West Coast, somewhere in the heartland, somewhere down South. How do you feel about people? What's your attitude, Paul would say? Are you tender and compassionate? Are you ready to extend grace to anyone and everyone? Or do you only extend grace to the people you feel like have earned it or deserve it? To which I would remind, that's not grace. Paul would say, are the realities of following Jesus having an effect at all on your attitude? Have we become mean-spirited when we serve a God that's not mean-spirited? when we follow a savior that's not mean-spirited? Do we walk around frustrated with people when we can't find Jesus? Frustrated with the people that oftentimes we're frustrated with? Jesus was frustrated with self-righteousness. Jesus was frustrated with people who judged other people and looked down on them and demeaned them and devalued them. Yeah, he was frustrated with those, but typically the people that frustrated Jesus, those, <laughs> we are them. So Paul says, this is about our attitude. And I think this is the question Paul is really wanting to ask. Do you treat the people who fall short of your standard the same way God treated you when you fell short of his standard? Whew. So quiet you can hear the rain. You have fell short of the standard, right? You, you, you did say you were going to, but you didn't, right? You didn't show up when you should have shown up, right? You, you said it and you shouldn't have. You wanted to say it, but you didn't. You've done that, right? You've broken the promise, haven't you? you you've gone there, you've done that. You, how was God towards you? 
How is God towards me? He says, do we treat and feel about other people with our attitude the way that God has dealt with us? What did God do when we fell short of the standard? He sent his son to keep the standard for us and to die for those who couldn't keep the standard. I don't know about you, but I found myself consistently in need of grace in every season of my life, consistently in need of forgiveness in every season of my life. Why am I surprised when the people that are around me consistently need grace and forgiveness? Why are we shocked by that? When we look at somebody in the mirror, that's our story every single day. That's my story every single day. Follow me around for 24 hours and you would not want, want, certainly if you could crawl inside my brain, if you could hear all the thoughts, if you could hear all, "Mm, gosh, I wish I could, but I can't, or sometimes I do and I shouldn't. And the same thing is true of all of us. And that's what Paul's point is. None of us have gotten there yet. So why are we surprised when other people haven't gotten there yet? His point is, extend to others the same attitude that God extends to you. Extend to others the same attitude. God is so patient with me. You ever, you ever blown it with your kids? I mean, you just kind of went from zero to thermonuclear in like three seconds. And you felt righteous and vindicated in the moment. And then you walked off. And your blood pressure fell about 40 points. And you were like... Well, I blew that. And you had to go back and apologize. You know, not one time has God ever done that with me. Not one time, he's patient, he's kind, he's gentle. So he says, then, if you understand this, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. Not about every little finite detail, loving one another, working together with one mind and one purpose. You don't have to think together. You don't have to have group think. You don't all have to agree about the same thing in the same way. That's not his thing. If you're looking for a church that's gonna have everybody be politically in agreement with you, you're never gonna find it. If you're looking for a group of people that's gonna be able to dot every I and cross every T with you theologically, you're never gonna be able to find it. The important things is to agree on the most important things, but Paul says you don't have to think the same things about the same things. You have to think the same way about each other. That's what it requires and that's an attitude thing. In disagreement, have the same attitude about one another. And then he says this, don't be selfish. Don't make it about you. We've all, we've all been there, we've all seen it, don't be selfish. There's no joy in that. Selfish people have no joy. Selfish people have no joy because they're self-consumed. Uh, everything's about them. Uh, everything, they make it about them. Uh, they, they are just always trying to control everything and everyone. Selfish people, they always come first. And people who typically come first, they, they just, for some reason, it's counterintuitive and it's kind of paradoxical. They just don't have joy. When you try to beat everybody else and he says, you're always serving you. He says, no, there's no, there's no joy in that. They always desire to be first in line. They always desire to have everything catered to them, even at the expense of other people. That's how they work. Uh, selfish people, they, they don't listen. You ever been in a conversation with somebody and it's like they, you knew they weren't listening? They're looking over you, around you, below you. Or you just knew they were sitting there thinking about what they were gonna say next. That's selfish people. They don't take a joke. They don't have a sense of humor. They don't like to be wrong. They're easily offended, right? 
I mean, you, you look at a selfish person and, and they wear their feelings on their shirt sleeve often. And I'm just doing this from my own personal experience because I've been the selfish person. They, they just, they just, they're just always easily, they get the pooch mouth. They, they just get puffed up and they're just, mm. He says, don't impress others. Well, what are we gonna do on social media? Right, what, what's that for? He says, don't spend all of your life trying to be validated by other people. If you judge your worth, your impact, your, your value by the amount of thumbs you get on Facebook, the amount of reposts that you get, or how many times people said, oh, you look great, or boy, this or that. He said, just don't, there's no joy in that because you're living life always for somebody else rather than the person you're supposed to be living life from. He says, be humble, thinking of yourselves, thinking of others as better than yourself. And then he says this, don't look out for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. Take an interest in others. He says, this is where joy comes about. And then he goes to verse five and listen to what he says, because it brings it full circle. You must have the same attitude that Jesus had. He said, that's what this looks like. And then he brings us to the most clear example of this attitude that all of us are supposed to walk around with, this attitude that begins with humility, this, this humility that understands who God is, who I am, and who you are. That I am in constant need of the grace of God, you are in constant need of the grace of God, and he, his grace is amazing and marvelous for every single one of us. And how dare we ever look at each other with anything other than tender compassion. And then he says, let me tell you about Jesus. Though he was God, he did not think that equality with God is something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. This is what it looks like to have the attitude of Jesus. He humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on the cross. Paul says, this is the attitude that you need. This is the attitude that if you ever get fuzzy on where your attitude is at, just take your cues from Jesus. Because though he was God, he was willing to leave all that he had in heaven, in the presence of God and all the angels, where he had been for all of eternity. He did not think it was a thing lost to lay those things aside and to come and take on the form of a servant. Jesus came to this world and every room he walked into, he was the most important one. In every room Jesus walked into, he was the one who was right and everybody else was wrong. In every room he walked into, he was the most holy, he was the most righteous, he was the most spiritual, he was the most faith-filled, spirit-filled person in any room he walked into. But Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve. Jesus was the king who showed up and did not demand that his people die for him. But he says, I am the king who has come to die for my people. Jesus never used his power to his own advantage to serve his own agenda. I imagine in heaven, this is not in the Bible, but I just imagine it this way. I imagine God the Father looks at Jesus and says, we've planned this and now's the time. It's time you leave and step down to earth. 
And son, you know what they're gonna do to you. Son, you know how they're gonna treat you. You're gonna go to your own and your own will not receive you. And they lie about you. And they're gonna persecute you. They're gonna torture you and they're gonna kill you. But this is the only way to win them back. And Jesus stepped out of heaven, came to earth, knowing the cost when he came. It was Jesus who said, greater love has no person than this, than one who would lay down his life for his friends. He faced the cross. He faced everything that life threw at him, but not without his joy. Hebrews, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He scorned the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And like Paul, in the face of hell itself, Jesus refused to relinquish joy because of his attitude of humility, his attitude that said, I'm going to serve others. I'm gonna do for them what they cannot do for themselves and I'm gonna obey God. And I'm gonna trust that God will take my active service, that my father will take this active service, this act of humility and he will raise me up and he will accomplish good through it. And so what Paul wants us to know is this, that humility always leads to obeying God and serving others. That's how we know how humble we are, whether we're obeying God and whether we're serving others. And the point is that obeying and serving others, that always leads to joy. Who's Paul thinking about in prison? Somebody else. Who's Jesus thinking about on the cross? Somebody else. So how is our attitude really? Do we need an attitude adjustment? When we look at Jesus and we see how he was and how he encountered life when everything was taken from him, is that how we respond? Is that how we feel? Or do we need to adjust our attitude to be in alignment with Jesus? Paul will close it by saying, God exalted him because of it to the highest place and gave him a name that was above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he was Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will never humble yourself to the point that God cannot lift you up. He has promised to do just that. And when you spend your life serving somebody else instead of worrying about you and worrying about me, and when we trust God and obey God, Paul says, that's when joy becomes a reality, a reality that will not change in the face of circumstances. Heavenly Father, Lord, sometimes my attitude stinks. Sometimes my attitude is, is less than healthy. Sometimes my attitude comes out on the wrong people that don't deserve it. And sometimes I take out what somebody else said or somebody else did on someone who has done nothing to me and had said nothing to me. Sometimes it's not even something I'm doing or saying, but it's just how I'm feeling. And it feels nothing like abundant life. It feels nothing like the life that you announced for us in John 10 at verse 10. So God, I know there's some parts of my attitude that's out of alignment. And, and God, sometimes it shows up in the worst places, in the most public places, and in the most unhealthy of ways. So God, I just, I ask you to forgive me. Sometimes I've got an attitude towards certain people or 
certain people who think certain things. God, forgive me for that. I want the attitude that Jesus had to be my attitude. I really do. I really do. I pray that for us. I pray that for our church. I pray that for Jesus followers in our community, Jesus followers in our nation, in our world. May our attitudes be like yours. And as we serve others and as we obey you, we discover that that is the secret of true lasting joy. Let's just keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed for just a moment. And just spend a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you about your attitude. Where's it at? What what needs to change? What needs to give? What needs to be adjusted? Father, speak to us in this moment as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.